Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Uh, we'll be in verse 21 and following in just a moment. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark, and I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you've joined us in this series through Romans. And, uh, you know, any series that we would teach or Bible study we would go through, the teacher can make the case that this is important. And uh, everything that's in the Bible is important for us. It gives us something about God and about ourselves. In particular, the book of Romans has been instrumental historically in waking people up from religion and helping them to understand the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why this is so crucial. So we're going to encourage you each and every week during this series to remember the three things we're asking as a church family for us to do. First of all, be here on Sundays, not just for yourself, but for the people around you. Uh, It's the equivalent of going to a game and experiencing the game with the crowd and the band and the noise and the players or watching it on TV and being remote and distant and disconnected. So we want you to be here. Second of all, if you can't be here, we know life happens. Travel and work and family and everything else, illness. Uh, Please pay attention to the teaching so that you can understand the entirety of the book of Romans to the best of our ability. Whether it's you're listening to Sunday mornings or I encourage you to listen to uh, Wednesday nights where we go deeper into this text with more time. Michael will be teaching uh, each Wednesday. And so I really want to encourage you to do that because it's that important. If you haven't been with us, this is what we've learned. When we understand what the gospel is, it changes everything about us. Not just the gospel to escape hell, but the totality of what it means that Jesus did and wants to continue to do in our lives. Second thing Michael taught us uh, in week two was that from Romans 1, 18 through 32, that idolatry is the cause of sin. That the reason we sin is we want to replace the God with our God that serves our purposes. And every one of us can understand that. Last week, I asked a question and answered the question, what does the Bible say about you good people? I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about you. You're ethical, you're moral, you try hard, you don't cheat people, you do the best you can, you try to represent your family name well, you you live life to a very good purpose. And what does the Bible have to say about that? When you sin, you are a sinner. Whether your sin is overtly external and everybody sees it and you mock God, or whether or not your sins are private and selfish and contained to just a few repercussions, it's still sin. And God has a solution to that as well. That solution is what we call grace. Now, grace is one of those terms that unfortunately has been co-opted by the world and it's used everywhere so that it means nothing. So let's redeem it. What does it mean biblically? Well, grace at its very primary definition from the Greek word charis means a gift that brings blessing, a gift that brings brings gladness. It's a joy. It's a pleasure. It's received because it's needed, maybe undeserved. And so that's what grace means in its simplest context. Graciousness is also a characteristic of God. And when you read the Psalms, you hear them talking about how God is a blesser. God is a giver. God is someone who gifts all of us. In uh, Psalm 86, verse 5, it says, You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. 
that he's a good God. And we know that to be true. You see, and grace is also used in the book of Romans as the gift of salvation. A a gift that brings gladness. A gift that comes from the goodness and love of God. But it brings gladness. I want to put a little equation up on the the board, and so you'll understand what we're talking about and what we've learned so far. What we've learned in the first two, three chapters of Romans is that Paul is establishing we have two issues that are present in our lives because of our sin. And I got a good word of encouragement from Michael after first hour. Here's what I want to tell you. We're going to be really technical this morning because what I want us to understand is the gravity of what Paul is presenting to us so that that gravity brings us back down to our feet Instead of always searching for a feeling, understanding the reality of the world and condition we're in. So here's the reality as presented by Paul so so far. We have a legal problem and we have a spiritual problem and we need a double cure. Curing one of them does not cure us. Curing both of them brings new life. And so what is the legal problem? It's what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. Sin has caused a problem where we have rebelled against God It's not a poor choice. It wasn't a mistake. We did it. And the reality is we all did it. We all chose to say to God, I don't want you telling me how to live my life. I'll make my own choices. And then we did it. We rebelled. We chose ourselves as God over him. So we have a legal problem, which means there is a penalty for our crime. So how do we solve that? And then on top of that, we have a spiritual problem, which is what Paul addressed in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Our hearts become weak. Our hearts become evil, impure. And we start this spiral of going from knowing that God is good and what God offers us is the best for us to beginning to question the validity of God all the way to the point that we say there is no God and we become our own God. So our hearts become weak. So we have two problems. We have a legal problem. What do we do about the punishment for our sin? And we have a spiritual problem. What do we do about the heart that gave us permission to do it? I I know some of you are old enough, and that makes me happy, and some of you have no clue what I'm about to talk about, but I grew up in the age of the first television comedy I remember watching on TV was the Flip Wilson show. And he used to always say, the devil made me do it. And I used to laugh as a kid. That's the worst theology ever. And for many of us, we're sitting here today going, well, the problem's not mine. I didn't do it. No, the the truth is we need the double cure, which is why I asked the guys, and Elijah, Elijah and Rebecca and all the musicians just slayed Rock of Ages. I love that song. It's from my growing up in the church and my heritage. But I want you to understand that I was told by my professor in the book of Romans something I'd never thought of before. He says he believes that Rock of Ages is actually the book of Romans in song. Listen to the words again. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Save from wrath, the legal problem. Make me pure, the spiritual problem. I love that line. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Romans 1.17 is the hinge verse in this entire book. It's where Paul goes. Now he makes a big break between chapter 8 and chapter 9, which we'll address when we get there. But what he's primarily doing is saying, when I know the gospel, it doesn't obligate me. It gives me a, a moment to be useful to God. Because for the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness not from myself. I can't solve my double problem. 
but God can. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul would say to the church at Corinth, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Interesting. If I can summarize Romans to this point in time, and it's a bit cheesy, so I'm embarrassed for myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. I asked a couple of buddies, I'm like, so what do you think of this statement? And they're like, yeah, it's not bad, which isn't the greatest affirmation you want when you stand in front of 800 people on a Sunday morning. Grace doesn't allow us to get away with murder. Please understand that. When we preach grace, it's not saying that we get away with murder. What grace does is is allows us to get away from the penalty because of Jesus' murder. Grace is not simply, let's act like it never happened. Grace is God saying, I will take care of the two things you did to yourself that you can't fix, and I'm going to do it through Jesus. So let's talk about this justifiable gift, this gift of grace that justifies us. The question of the morning is, how can sinners be be brought back into a right relationship with God? How come when I know the fact that I have not only incurred the wrath of God because I've told him, leave me alone, you're not my God, you don't own me, and now I have to turn around and not only that, but I have to recover from what that sin's done to me, both spiritually and in the rest of my life's consequences. How does God reconcile me back to him when I'm guilty, guilty, guilty? Romans 3.21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we have to identify two words this morning. Well, actually three. We've identified what grace is biblically. Now we need to talk about what it means to be righteous. And this is not a word that's used out in culture too often. If it is, we're made fun of. You think you're so righteous, you're self-righteous. But what does it mean when Paul uses it? Well, there's two forms in the Bible for the word righteousness, fundamentally. The first word is virtue, integrity, and upright behavior. That is a righteous person. That is a good person. That is a faithful person. You can trust them. In fact, Jesus even uses this form when John the baptizer is, Jesus comes to him to be baptized. Remember, John's like, dude, you're it, I'm not. You, You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, let's do this to fulfill righteousness. Jesus was not baptized because he needed to be forgiven of sin. He was baptized to fulfill the upright ethical behavior of someone in God's kingdom. So that's one form of righteousness. The other form of righteousness is what we're simply going to redefine is right standing with God. That you and God are good. Which is a question we ask each other often. Are, are, are we good? You haven't heard from someone in a while. They haven't called. You haven't been texting. Uh, there's no emails back and forth. No funny stories shared. And you begin to wonder. There's been an absence here. Are we good? The righteousness that Paul primarily speaks of in Romans is asking the question, are you right with God? And is God right with you? So what does it mean for this righteousness? Let me give you what Paul says in these verses that we just read. First of all, right standing with God is apart from the law. It has nothing, listen to me carefully, it has nothing to do with how well you're doing. It has nothing to do with the good things you've done since you made the mistakes that caused the need for the double cure. Let me give you an example. I'm driving home through Carterville, the speed trap that it is. 
and I'm pulled over for driving 31 miles an hour in a 30 zone. And they pull me over, and I can say I didn't know, ignorance of the law, no excuse. And I get one of those beautiful $95 to $125 tickets. And I'm driving back. Here's the truth of it. I was speeding, yes. And if I drove 25 miles an hour in a 30 all the way to my house and back for the rest of my life, it does not take me from the penalty of the fact that I broke the law. For many of us, we've bought into, as long as I'm sorry, as long as I say we're moving forward, as long as I say I'm going to be better than I've ever been, that doesn't take care of the issue. That's why Paul says, your righteousness with God is not how well you've kept the law. Secondly, right standing comes through faith in Jesus. It's the only way it comes. We're not talking about believing there is a God, believing there is a Jesus. If you queried people in America, I'm guessing off the top of my head, 90% of the people would believe there was a historical man named Jesus. But we're not talking about faith in history. We're talking about, do you believe he was the son of God who came to earth to bring the double cure? Because if you do, that belief in him will bring right standing between you and God. That trust. So let me equate it to another illustration. Let's say you wives buy your husband a piece of exercise equipment. I know, it's funny, but go with me. A good wife who knows her husband not only buys him the exercise equipment, she buys an ample supply of Advil, a first aid kit, a heating pad, and she keeps the receipt so 29 days later she can return the equipment. Can I have an amen? She not only provides the gift, but she provides all the subsequent gifts that are going to be needed for him to accept it well. This is exactly what God did in Jesus. He did not save you to give you a second chance. He brought you everything you needed to survive the transition from needing the double cure to being cured. And here's a piece of good news, bad news, depends how you perceive it. The process by which Jesus cures you will take your entire lifetime. The most holy day you're going to have is the day we stand at a church and put you in a box and say goodbye. So here's the good news of that. God's in no hurry to fix you because he's got his hands on you. You're back in his possession, and he does the work in his perfect timing. So it's not a, it's a, apart from the law, it's not about law keeping. It's through faith in Jesus. It's also right standing comes because all who are in Christ are justified. This is our third word. Righteous, right standing. Grace, a gift that brings gladness. And justified. The word I'm told in the original language means to acquit, to, to pardon, to remove the penalty. When you're acquitted in a court in the United States, they say that you did not commit the crime, or if you're pardoned from that sin, then, then they can't hold you. We have a term here we call no double jeopardy. In other words, they can't make you innocent in a court of law and turn around and get you later for the same crime. Once it's forgiven, it's forgiven. Good news today, church, is when God justifies you through Jesus Christ, your past can no longer be brought up against you. It's done. It's forgiven and it's moved on. Fourthly, right standing is given freely by his grace. But when we use the word freely, I want you to understand, it's a big deal. It didn't cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. If we ever forget that, grace becomes an insurance policy instead of a blessing. Fifthly, right standing was secured by the redemption that came by Jesus. Paul draws it all to a conclusion. Jesus did the work. 
So how is it possible for a truly righteous God who's never done wrong, who's never committed sin, who's always loved us and been there for us, how can he declare me to be righteous? Because I'm not. I might have a good hour. I don't have a good day. I have an hour or two where I'm not doing something stupid or selfish, something that's idolatry, some pleasure I want or some feeling I want to receive from people, feeding that, serving that God, and then jumping over and saying to the real God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I got distracted. So how does God justify someone like me? Romans 3.25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, there are times, and I just want to confess this to you, there's times I read Paul and I'm like, dude, you, every sentence is like 18 pounds. It's so heavy. So how do we interpret this to, for us to understand it? And let me just phrase it this way. God did not look at your sin and say, I'm going to act like it didn't happen. He said to Jesus, that sin must be punished, and I'm going to punish you for it. And in one of the most beautiful moments that any of us will ever realize, Jesus said, okay, I love them enough to be punished for them so that by my punishment, they might be freed from their sin so that they can go on and live the second half of the double cure. Their hearts can be made whole again. Church, is that good news for us or what? That someone who we were an enemy to did what it took to help us escape. And the, pen- the penalty wasn't ignored. It was saved from wrath to make us pure. And that's the essence of saving grace. It's the, af- or it's the essence of saving faith. It's that I had a legal problem, I have a spiritual problem, and I can't fix either of them, and one of them's going to get me. And if I only take care of one and neglect the other, I'm still a mess. God said to Jesus, I'm going to send you to fix all of that, but it's going to cost you everything. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it says that Jesus said, you didn't take my life. I laid it down. And in there we have the beautiful part of the gospel. Remember I told you at the beginning of today, if we get the gospel right, it'll redefine us. And it will redefine why we're here. And that's important. Verse 27 Now, here's where Paul becomes, he comes back to talking to me. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but of that of faith. So this double cure is offered to me, and if I accept it, do I walk around going, I dodged it, I dodged hell? No, I walk around saying, I've received something I didn't deserve. But understand this, we are justified. And and this is a corny preacher thing, but it's memorable, so if you want to have memory devices, sometimes they become cliches. The word justified is easily remembered as just as if I'd never sinned. This is what it means to be justified. God says we're good. We're we're just not going to talk about that anymore. And we're going to move forward from this day, and I'm going to build your heart as well as save your soul. So in this moment, understand this. We are justified by faith alone, but it is never faith alone. Okay? Okay? Now, we live in a culture that says, what's the minimum amount of work I got to do to be the best athlete? I love the fact that I, the internet knows I'm overweight because every website I go to promised me that in 10 days I can lose one half of my body mass and I'm intrigued. 
but I don't know why I think it's fair that I can lose what took me 12 years to put on, I can lose it in 12 days. I don't think that works in any of God's economy. There are consequences to the choice I make. I'm going to live with them and suffer for them. I've been teasing my friends. I had a great 2015. I mean, I had an awesome 2015. There wasn't a food I did not conquer. So in 2016, if you invite me to lunch, I'm going to have a salad and don't feel bad for me. I am paying the price, but man, I love 2015. 2016 is kind of a bummer. But here's the truth. If I want to be healthy, I can't just want to be healthy. If you want to love Jesus, it's not as simple as saying, I want to love Jesus. There are actions that love Jesus. Church, are you with me? Obedience, does that love Jesus? Yeah, because I've been obedient to myself, and that's why I'm in this condition, both physically and spiritually. Why not try to live for something else besides what makes me happy, and then all of a sudden I'm going to get back the health I want in every area of my life. So there's obedience that faith produces, like repentance, confession, baptism, opening God's word, and not only reading God's word for his poetry, but reading God's word to say, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to trust him that if I do that, there's a blessing of grace on the other side. You see, I don't want us to think, well, once in my life I made a confession of faith and God's contractually obligated to save me. That's a lie. Remember, it's not about the law you keep. It's about why you keep the law. He's freed us to worship him willingly, not because we have to. Verse 29, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. If that doesn't make sense to you, I'll just allude back to last week's message where we talked about where Paul challenged those that were legalistic about things like circumcision and baptism and these other legalistic things. And he said, no, listen, there can be a person who's circumcised in the flesh, but their heart is so far from God. And there are people that have never been circumcised in the flesh who love God to the degree that he's requiring and asking of them. And so which one is truly a person of faith? So Paul says here, no, God justifies those who trust Jesus, not just with words, but with actions. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So here's what I'm challenging us to do today. Let's stop acting like being good is what will save us. And let's start being good because we've been saved. Let's live in the freedom of obedience because we trust that God is good and keeps his promises. So I'd like to conclude very quickly this morning with our third point. I need you to know that grace has been there from the start. God did not change the rules. Uh, You know, I look around, I know some of you guys coach. Some of you men and women coach around here, whether it's little peanuts all the way up to high school and college. And so there's degrees of expertise in this. But any good coach looks at the team and says, I got nobody who can bring the ball up the court. Help. And they got to figure out a way to play with their players to get the ball up the court. And sometimes they look and they got two or three guards and they start smiling to themselves going, oh, I can do a lot. If I got three guys who can bring the ball up, we're going we're gonna to eat people's lunch. This is good. God did not look down on earth and go, oh, man, I got nothing. We're going to get whipped. So I got to come up with grace. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Grace was there from the beginning. God realized we're not going to be good at being good. So he didn't make that a requirement. What he said is, will you be faithful? Will you trust me when you don't know what to do? Grace has been there from the beginning. 
So what he does is he uses a good illustration of Abraham. And to his audience, they would have thought, well, Abraham is the father of faith. He was a perfect man. And Paul's like, no, let me show you that the same thing that saves you is the same thing that saved Abraham. Let's look quickly. Verse 1, Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? I love this. Let's use Abraham as an object lesson. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham that believed, Abraham believed rather that God was good, and God could keep his promises even when the promises seemed impossible. Verse 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, in verse 5, I want you to notice that Paul says something that John uh, Stott says is the most shocking statement found in the book of Romans. He says that God justifies the wicked. Church, do you know who he's talking about? Us. Remember, the speeding ticket isn't erased because I decide afterwards to drive the speed limit said, God chooses to justify the wicked. So we must erase from our minds that God only loves those that are trying hard. No, God loves everybody. But all of us are in need of the double cure. Romans 4, 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offsprings. He is the father of us all. So two points this morning about Abraham. So you understand what we learned today about grace, righteousness, and justification. Abraham's faith was placed in the right person, and, his, and it wasn't in himself. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. He was a 90-year-old man. He'd fathered one child And God said, you're going to have a child, but not the one, not the one named Ishmael. I'm going to give you a child in your old age, and he's going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham said, physiologically and socially, this makes no sense, but I know who God is. I'm going to trust him. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had nothing to do with it. See, the truth is, it wasn't, and we have to be careful with faith, because you hear this message preached in other places, and I want us to be careful of it. I believe that faith grows like a muscle. The more you use it, the greater it becomes, and the less you use it, the more it atrophies. I do believe that's biblically sound. But faith that saves you is not the size of your faith, it's who your faith is in. It's who you trust. And secondly, Abraham's story is to encourage us to trust our faith. That if Abraham could be talked about thousands of years later, what might your choice to follow Jesus leave as a legacy? Not only for yourself, but so that the gospel goes forward. Verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. Church, pause there a moment. Paul wrote those words a long time ago. And they're true. This isn't celebrating the fact that Abraham was right with God. It's so that we can be right with God. And remember what makes us right with God. 
For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he also delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. For us who believe, not just to Abraham, not just to the Jews, not just to the people of Jesus' day, not just to the perfect people, but to the rest of us. There is a promise that God can justify you. He can cure both of your problems, your legal problem with wrath and your spiritual problem with the decadence of our own hearts. God can change all of that, not just for one generation, but for all generations. How? For those of us who believe. Well, I may overstep my bounds as a preacher here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you know what I'd wish for us as a church? Oh, man, we've got the legal thing down. You live in Missouri. I lived in Michigan for 22 years with my wife doing ministry. And you would meet people in Michigan, and you would find out if they went to church. I come to Missouri, you find out where they go to church. The Bible Belt, we must be the buckle. Everybody's churched. But my fear is many of us are stuck with only one problem of the double cure. We got our fire insurance. We walk around with our baptismal certificates, our membership tickets, and we tell everybody, look, a long time ago I made my choice and I've got the wrath of God taken care of. Uh, Through the blood of Jesus I've been saved. But what we've missed is the other side of our need. It's not only to not go to hell, it's to begin to live in the kingdom now. You see, he wants to fix our hearts not just keep our souls from burning. So can we move beyond the elementary things of not going to hell? Can we begin now to understand that part of what Jesus wants to offer us is life, to live in his kingdom. And you don't have to die to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is available now. So it may seem like the off-season church. It may seem like, well, it's not really, it's the off season and I'm going to kind of rest and relax because when the season starts, I'm going to get ready. I'm telling you, the game's already begun. The heart is the issue today. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath. Oh, but Jesus, please help us become pure. Living for something based on faith, not based on fear. See, the wonderful love of God for us was that he said to Jesus, they will be punished. Their hearts are dead. And Jesus said, I can take care of that. So he came and died on the cross to take care of the first. And he left us the Holy Spirit to take care of the second. Church, do we want to live? Because Jesus is the answer. For those of you that wonder what I'm talking about, and this is new to you, and you're like, wait a second, a long time I used to go to church, and I thought if I died today, I'd go to heaven. Let's, let's quit worrying about what happens then. What we want to talk to you about is what begins now. How do you live this experience with Christ and follow him with faithful obedience? Because that's what he deserves, not what we owe him. That's what he deserves. So this morning, if you want someone to pray with you, we've had a few come first hour and say, I'm struggling. Would you pray with me? Absolutely. I'll tell you this. If you ask us to pray with you every day for the next seven days, someone will be on their knees before God fighting for you. And if you don't even know what it means to follow Jesus, come see us. Because we don't want you to fall in love with Christ Church of Orinogo. And I don't want you to trust me. I want you to have an alive experience with Jesus, just like he promises. Let's stand together and sing. 
Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.